was thinking about this, how much commitment it takes to stick it out and to stay put in one place. And you might be thinking I'm talking about like relationships, which that's true. It does take a lot of effort to stick it out sometimes. You might be thinking about work, desire to leave, but you stay. But I'm not really talking about any of those. I'm talking about literally staying put, like sitting on your couch, staying put. It takes a lot of commitment to do that. If you don't believe me, just talk to Jessica Mosley or Jeff Miller. They know a little something about sitting on the couch. In 2009, Jessica set a Guinness World Record for sitting on the couch for 70 hours and 45 seconds. Jeff Miller said that cannot stand. The next year, in 2010, he went to ESPN Zone, and he sat on a couch or a recliner, actually, for 72 hours watching sports. That takes a lot of commitment. That's three days, people. Some of you, how many of you are going like, three days? Is that all? Man, I've sat on the couch for like a week without moving. This is actually harder than it sounds because what you do here is uh, you actually sit, literally sit on the couch and do not get up. Welcome to the world of competitive sitting competitions. Yes, it is a thing. So what you do in this, I know it sounds easy, but it's not at all. You have to really think this thing through because once you sit down, you cannot get up to go to the bathroom. Eight hours. You, you can't wear an adult diaper either. That's off, that's off the rules. So you, you have to sit. You have one bathroom break every eight hours. So, yeah, you can eat and drink whatever you want, but you can't get up. You're allowed to get up once an hour. It's true, but all you can do is get up and stretch, and then you have to sit back down again. You have to stay awake for the whole time. You fall asleep. You're out. You go, oh, i got to go to the bathroom. You're out. Maybe the worst part of this of all of it once you sit down, somebody else is in control of the remote the whole time. Hey, let's watch a little bit of competitive bowling now. <sighs> right? Jeff, man, Jeff was a machine. You can see him here in the picture. He, like, won this whole thing by just driving through, and he made it to the finish line. What did he get for his superior sitting ability? Well, first of all, he got a brand-new recliner. Very appropriate. He got $1,000 toward a new TV. He got $1,000 in ESPN Zone money. He got free cable for a year. And he got that nice little couch potato uh, trophy. Very nice. And so it's pretty cool. Brian Hanover from ESPN Zone said this. Most people have no idea what it takes to win. They don't understand the endurance it takes to stay awake and control your bodily issues. Jeff is uniquely qualified. He's an expert. Isn't that stretching it just a little bit there, Brian? He's an expert. It's sitting still. You know. Maybe, maybe you felt this way, though, not necessarily like literally stuck on the couch, though in the wintertime it's a very common sensation of just feeling like, wah. Maybe you felt stuck in life, like you're in this repetitive cycle that just never seems to end, and, and you don't know how to get out of it. You just feel stuck maybe in a relationship, or you feel like you're in a place in a relationship that's not good and you don't know what to do about it. Maybe you felt at one point or another you're stuck in some kind of a, a bad habit or an addiction that you can't break out of. Maybe you just aren't really satisfied where, where you're at in your life right now. You just maybe feel like you're ready for the next stage to begin, and you have no idea when that's going to happen. You're ready for school to be over, or you're ready for the next whatever in your career to happen, and you just feel stuck. So let me ask you a question. If you feel stuck and somebody comes along and offers to move you in a new direction, would you take them up on it? What if Jesus himself came along and offered you a totally new approach to life, invited you to go in an entirely different direction than you'd ever considered? Would you take him up on that? If he literally walked in and said, you've been doing this, but I want you to start doing this, would you go, okay? Or would you say, you know, couch's kind of comfortable. I'm going to sit here and think about that for a while. I'll get back with you later, Jesus. 
I want to point you to some guys who literally had their lives changed. Totally new direction in their life once Jesus invited them to make a change. And I want to see what we can learn from it. So we're going to get into this because it's really applicable to us today. 2,000 years ago, Jesus invited people to change the direction of their life. He's still doing that today. Jesus still, in 2016, invites people to take an entirely new direction with their life from what you were doing before. So I want to look at that. We're in, in this series called His Story. We're just a few weeks into it. So if you're kind of new to this, that's okay. You can get caught up really quick. We're looking at a book called His Story, which is just a harmony of the Gospels of the Bible. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell the story of Jesus, this is it. Just put into one story format. It's all from the Bible. There are some notes in there that kind of explain and make the transitions, but they're all in italics, so you can be very clear what's from the Bible and what's not. It's a really quick read. If you haven't grabbed a copy of His Story, you want to grab one on the way out. They're just $5 donation, or if you don't have $5, just take one. Pay it whenever you got it. So those of you who have been reading it, it's pretty good, and it moves fast, right? I know some of you told me, like, you're able to read a chapter several times in a week. We're just studying a chapter a week, so it's very easy to get caught up. So today we're in chapter 3, and we're looking at Jesus calling some disciples. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and get caught up on chapter 1 and chapter 2, just in case you've got behind or if you haven't heard this before. So chapter 1 is talking about what the Gospels tell us about Jesus' birth and all the events that surrounded that. Then last week we looked at chapter 2, and it's about Jesus beginning his ministry. So if you were to, in your mind, just picture the, the nation of Israel. So you've got the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and you've got Israel there. Jesus, when he was 30 years old, left his hometown up in the north of Israel, which is up Nazareth. It's in the region called Galilee. Jesus left home, and he went south to the Jordan River where his cousin John the Baptist was immersing people in the river and calling unto them to repent of their sins. And Jesus went there, and he said, here I am, I'm ready to be baptized. John looked at him, and he said, what are you talking about? I should be asking you to baptize me. I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus said, we got to do this. It's important to fulfill all righteousness. So John said, okay. John immersed Jesus in the water. When Jesus came out of the water, do you remember what happened? Two things. Holy Spirit came down from heaven in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus. And the voice of God the Father spoke, and he said, this is my son, and I love him, and I'm very pleased with him. So this is where Jesus kicks off his preaching and teaching ministry right here. He is baptized. It says then that Jesus was immediately led or even like pushed out into the wilderness. There's a place where there's no one at. And he's taken out to this wilderness where he spends 40 days fasting, going without food, praying, planning his ministry for the next three years, and being tested by the devil. Satan comes to Jesus over and over and tries to get him to do the wrong thing. And Jesus repeatedly refuses to give in to temptation. Satan takes the Bible and quotes it at Jesus and twists the Bible. And Satan's like, here, just do this, Jesus. Change rocks into bread because you know you're hungry. Jesus is like, no, man lives on every word from the mouth of God and not just bread alone. So Jesus is the only human being in all of history to ever have consistently and always refused to give in to temptation. Powerful scene. Okay, so 40 days have elapsed since he's been baptized. Jesus goes back to where his cousin John is baptizing. So this is day 41. We're just like a month and 11 days in. Jesus goes back to John, and John sees him coming and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John goes on and says, I didn't even know it was him for sure until I saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. Remember that? So John says, there he is. The next day, so we're at day 42, Jesus is again where John is baptizing, and John sees him, and there's a couple of guys standing with John, and John says, look, the Lamb of God. 
Now, I think what he's saying, because he's repeating himself here, I think what he's saying to the two guys standing with him, there he is, go follow him. You don't need to follow me anymore, go follow Jesus. So they did, they followed Jesus, literally. Like Jesus is walking away and he hears something, he turns around and sees these two guys following him, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, uh, where are you going? Where are you staying? Which is not creepy at all. I think Jesus understood what they meant because he said, well, come on, why don't you find out for yourself? So they went with Jesus to the house he was staying in. They spent the day hanging out with him. So here's the thing. John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God. These two guys go follow. Who are these two guys? One of them was named Andrew. Andrew, after he spent the day hanging out with Jesus, immediately went to go get his brother and tell him, hey, I think we found the Messiah. Andrew's brother's name is Simon, otherwise known as Peter. Jesus would change his name. So Andrew goes to get Simon. At this point, Jesus is starting to gather an entourage. He's just 42 days into his ministry. He's already got Andrew and Simon. Now, who is the other guy who was standing with John the Baptist? He's never named, but most scholars think the other guy was also named John, as in John who wrote the Gospel of John, John who wrote Revelation, John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John that Brian Boyer used in the communion meditation this morning. This John and Andrew went and followed Jesus. Then John went and got his brother, James. All these guys are from the same hometown back up in Galilee. They've come down to listen to John the Baptist preach. Following me here? Now, if you'll remember this from last week also, we're still in chapter 2. Philip, who also heard what John the Baptist said about Jesus, he went and got a friend of his who was also from Galilee, a guy named Bartholomew or Nathaniel, same guy. Nathaniel was skeptical, but when he talked to Jesus, he became convinced you might be the Messiah. So you've got at least six people now who are following Jesus wherever he goes. Still in chapter 2. They leave where John is baptizing. They go back up home, up north to Galilee. They go to Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown, and they go to a wedding there where Jesus performs his first miracle. What was it? Changed water into wine. Then all of the Jesus followers, they go back down to Jerusalem again, back down to the south. They celebrate Passover. They go back up north, and on the way, they talk to a woman in Samaria at the city of Sychar, at the well, the woman at the well. So now we are at the beginning of chapter 3. At this point, something like nine months to a year have gone by. So there's about that much. Jesus now has been preaching and teaching and starting to do some miracles. Water to wine was just the first of several more miracles, and you read about them if you read chapter 2 and chapter 3. So here's the thing. Jesus goes back home, and he goes to preach in his hometown of Nazareth. I think this, at this point, some of these other guys go back to their hometowns to do a little bit of work, maybe get caught up on some bills. Because at this point, Simon and Andrew, James and John go back to, they have a fishing business on the, the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, same thing. It's just a lake up there in the north in Galilee. That's where we're going to pick things up in chapter 3 today. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, you can look in Luke chapter 5. If you've got a copy of his story, I believe it's on page 48 there, and we're going to pick up what happens after Jesus went to preach and teach in his hometown of Nazareth. So you go down to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. It says, One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of Lake Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them there and were washing in their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, Simon, to push out into the water. So Jesus sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. 
Who is this Simon? Andrew's brother Simon. Remember, Simon and Andrew, James and John have been following Jesus for nine months to a year now. I don't think it's any accident that that's the place that Jesus went to go teach and preach. He's found some guys he already knows. Now, when he goes there, James and John and Andrew and, and Simon are all fishing. They're done actually fishing for the night when Jesus shows up to teach. It's probably, probably dawn or soon after. At this point, Jesus has done some miracles. He's done some extraordinary teaching. And there's a crowd following him. Whatever mental picture you have of Jesus, and I, I don't know what you think of Jesus when you think of him, you have to account for the fact that wherever Jesus went, when people met Jesus, they liked Jesus. He's a very likable, compelling guy. People just couldn't get enough of his presence and his teaching, the miracles. So these crowds are constantly pressing into Jesus wherever he went. People always wanted to spend time with him. The more that Jesus taught and the more that he preached, the bigger the crowds got. So pretty soon, you see this in, um, I guess this would be like Mark 128, Mark uh, 145, Matthew 424. We've got these accounts where it says, Word about Jesus spread all over the region of Galilee. That would be like saying, word about Jesus spread all over the southern United States. It went so far as word even spread into other countries. People even in Syria, as far as that up north, have been hearing about Jesus and his teaching and his miracles. So it got to the point where Jesus literally could not go into a town publicly because it would just be a mob. He couldn't go anywhere. He would often go off into the woods or into the wilderness or up into the mountains just to get some quiet time and to pray. Because people would just not leave him alone in a good way, but they just were always there. So some of you, I'm looking around, some of you are moms of little kids. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I was reading one mom confessed this. She said, my, first, my very first coping skill I learned as a parent was to hide out in the bathroom. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, I think when Jesus, he, here at the beginning of Luke 5, when he goes to the lake shore and he gets in the boat and he moves out on the water, Really smart for a couple of reasons. One, from the boat, the acoustics are amazing across the water. He's got this whole crowd on the shore listening to him. Two, it's just some personal space. It's a little bit of distance between him and the crowd as he's teaching. You know, I, I look at this, and I, and I think about what an extraordinary teacher he must have been. I like to think I'm an okay teacher, but people don't follow me around everywhere I go to hang on my every word. But J- Jesus is that kind of teacher. People have never heard anything like this before. So they're pressing in, and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to teach you. And that's what he does. Verse 4, he'd finished speaking and teaching. He said to Simon in the boat, now, go on out where it's deeper and let your nets down to catch some fish. Just one thing I love about this, Mike Bro points this out. Do you notice that Jesus preaches and fishes in the same clothes? Yeah? Am I right? There's some consistency there. You've got to like that. Here's something else I love about Jesus. I told you he's such a likable guy. Jesus goes where ordinary people live life. He wants to spend some time with Simon, Andrew, James, John. If Simon had been a a truck driver, Jesus would have said, hey, Simon, let's go for a drive. If he'd been a CEO, Jesus would have been like, let's go get coffee, let's do lunch, let's have a meeting, schedule something, tell your executive to tell my executive assistant, and we'll, we'll work it out. Peter's a fisherman, so Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. Now, you look down at verse 5. There are two simple sentences here. What we are not told is how much time came between the first sentence and the second sentence. Jesus says, let's go further out and fish. Peter says this, Master, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. I love Peter's reaction. 
It's like, you want us to do what? You're going to see it in his reaction. You've got to read the subtext here. You want, we, we haven't caught anything all night. It's, it's like you could count to 100 and just put a huge awkward pause between that first sentence and that second sentence. Peter's making eye contact with Jesus. Jesus is making eye contact with Peter. We fished all night, and we didn't catch a thing. One, two, three. No one's saying anything. No one's going to cave, you know? Because you know what Peter's thinking. I'm just waiting for him to go, yeah, you're right, Peter. You know fishing. We're not going to go. I'm just kidding. Whatever. Because Peter didn't say it, but I know what he's thinking. Jesus, you're a carpenter, and I respect that. You're a rabbi, a teacher, and I respect that. But I don't go to your job site and tell you how to build a house. I don't go and tell you how to preach a sermon. I'm a fisherman. I know fishing. I have done this for a living my whole life. You're coming into my boat telling me how to do this. Look, everybody knows you don't fish in the daytime. You fish at night. We didn't catch anything in the night. It's not going to get any better in the daytime. All we're going to do is look like a bunch of idiots in front of all those people who are on the shore watching. Like, what are they doing fishing in the daytime? Nobody fishes in the daytime. There's too much light. It scares the fish away. We're only going to get these nets dirty that we just spent all morning cleaning. You really want us to do that? You ever felt that way? A little skeptical about what Jesus asks you to do? Like, not being disrespectful here, but you ever felt kind of like God knows spiritual things and God knows religious things like if you want to know about prayer or being a nice person God's got that covered Jesus could tell you about that but then if you want to know about real life like how to run a business or how to raise kids or how to deal with people like God you you can handle the religious stuff and then there's the real world that everybody has to actually live in and these are really pretty things that you say but it doesn't really work in the real world so you know, I'll ask you for things like this on churchy kind of things, but then I got to kind of find another source of wisdom for, you ever thought that way or caught yourself thinking that way? It's okay if you have. I'm not judging you. I'm not criticizing you, but I would encourage you to maybe rethink your position about that, about how much God really knows about all of life. So if you're skeptical like Simon, I want you to understand what happens here next. Simon is incredibly skeptical of what Jesus has just asked him to do. Drop the nets in the water. This is not going to be a good... You can just read this into it. At the same time, how long has Simon known Jesus now? Nine months. He was there when Jesus changed water to wine. He was there when Jesus healed different people. He was there when Jesus healed his own mother-in-law from a potentially fatal fever. In his own house, his mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. This is in his first rodeo with Jesus. He's seen Jesus do some extraordinary things. He's heard him teach some powerful things. So... That's how I explain the second, ver- second sentence of this verse at all. Otherwise, it would have just stopped there. Jesus, nobody fishes in the daytime, forget it. That's not what he said, though. He calls Jesus master, which indicates a level of respect. He didn't call him rabbi or teacher. Master says, I recognize you've got a little bit of authority. Simon said, we've worked hard all night. We didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, we'll let the nets down again. In other words, I wouldn't do this for anybody else. I'd tell them to jump out of the boat and go ahead and find shore however you can. But master, because you said it, okay, we'll do it. And here's the key phrase, because you said it. I want you to recognize what's going on here. 
I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, but you need to recognize what just happened here. Peter had, Simon had in his mind, one way that he was going to do things. Jesus said something, and Simon Peter did something different because Jesus asked him to. In other words, he had a will and a purpose to do one thing, and Jesus changed him, and he submitted his will to Jesus' direction and did things differently. And something powerful happened when he chose to do that. It's incredible because Jesus gives him what may be the world's most incredible fishing story. I think it's the world's most incredible fishing story because it may be the only true fishing story in the whole world right here. Watch what happens, verse 6. So they went ahead and they dropped the nets because at this time their nets were so full of fish, the, the nets began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners from the other boat. Soon the boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. You ever been one of those places where like, uh, like there's a lake and they've stocked it with goldfish and they've got the food dispenser and as soon as you put the quarter in and click it, the goldfish are all at the dock waiting to be fed and they're like roiling around and waiting to be, they're jumping over, they're jumping on the dock to tell you how to do it. Like, put the quarter in and get the feed and give it to us. I picture it like that. These fish are like trying to jump in the boat themselves. There's so, so many of them. Their nets are ripping and their biceps are bulging as they pull the fish in. The, the, the boat is sinking so much that the water is like coming over the edge and they're laughing and, and Peter's like, come on guys, get over here, help us. You see where, look where we're going? And everybody's laughing and everybody's pulling. They're going to pay a lot of bills. You've been gone for nine months. There's a lot of things that need to get caught up on, and right here in one catch, no one has ever seen this before. This, this literally never happens. You never catch fish in the daytime. You don't even catch this many fish at night on your best day. But because Peter trusted Jesus, he got to see a miracle. This is so powerful. What is Jesus trying to do here? Step back and try to look at it through Jesus' eyes. He's a teacher. What is he trying to teach Simon and Andrew? and James, and John. Trust me. Put your faith in me. I know what I'm talking about. You know what faith is, right? It's simply putting your trust in something or someone. Sometimes you put your faith in the wrong things, and it's let you down, or it's failed you, and you realize, okay, I had a lot of trust, but my level of trust doesn't matter if that person is unworthy of my trust. Jesus is trying to say, look, I know about a whole lot of other things other than just fishing, but I do know fishing also because I know everything. I created everything. I have ultimate authority and power over everything. You can trust me. Because let's be honest here. If I invite you to follow Jesus and to do what Jesus says, why in the world would you want to follow him and obey him if he doesn't know what he's talking about? I want you to have confidence that if you submit to him, that he will lead you well. He knows about all parts of life, not just the spiritual parts. He knows about everything. Look down at verse 8. Simon Peter realized what was happening. He fell to his knees before Jesus and he said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. It's like, man, I don't even deserve to be in the same boat with you. In that moment, what is Peter realizing? Oh my goodness. I am in the presence of something pure and holy and much more powerful than I am, and I know how I measure up to you, and I am just, I'm, I'm afraid right now. Which, let's just be very clear, is absolutely an appropriate emotion to feel when you come into the presence of God. If you come into the presence of Almighty God and don't feel a little bit of fear, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> right? 
So let me give you an analogy. It's not a great analogy, but maybe this will help you think about it in the right way. So if you were to go into a place like this, look at this picture here, this power, this power station or substation. If you were to go in there and you're on the other side of the fence, would you take a big metal pole and start swinging it around and knocking into those things? Would you let your kids hang off the wires and spin around? I know there's safety equipment, but if you don't have a healthy respect for the power of what is around you, you're just dumb, right? You're going to be visiting the ER, or people are going to be visiting you and saying, what a great life you lived until you got stupid. <laughs> you, just, you have to have a healthy respect for the power that's around. Different analogy, but if you were to walk in, you're a zookeeper, and you were to go into the, the pit where the lions or the tigers are, or you know, some of the different bears, you got to be smart. Because maybe those animals have got used to you, and a hundred times it's been okay. That one time that you go in there and you don't follow all the procedures is the time you get eaten. You have to have a healthy respect for the power that's in front. And that's all Peter is saying here. I have a healthy awe and respect and fear for God. I'm in the presence of God, and that's absolutely appropriate. God can make us stop just like that. And that's the power that is in Jesus. And I still, at the same time, I'm blown away by how Jesus responds to Peter. Because as you look at this, this tells you something about what God is like. Yes, he is awe-inducing, but look in verse 10. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. I can just see him putting his hand on his shoulder. Don't sweat it. It's okay. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. So I told you, somebody's life is about to change directions forever, and here it is right here. Because of this experience, they went from being fishermen to being people who told everyone in the whole world about Jesus and what Jesus did and what he accomplished. They got off the couch and they got moving in a new direction because God called them to. And here's the thing for us. That same invitation has been changing people's lives for thousands of years. It changed my life, and it can change yours. Jesus welcomes everybody to follow him, not just some guys 2,000 years ago. I love this true story so much, not only because of what it says about what God did in their lives, but it, what it says about God himself. And it tells us something because God doesn't change, and he's still like this today. Simon is like this uh, blue-collar, deadliest catch, rough-around-the-edges guy. He's really, I don't want to put too much into it that the Bible doesn't say, but I just kind of imagine from the things that he says that he didn't always live his life the way he should have. There were some things in his life that he thought probably don't belong there, and yet it's in that situation that Jesus comes to him and invites him to follow him. Jesus is not some kind of an elite snob that expects you and you and you to get your act together, and then maybe we'll have a conversation about doing something. He's not like that. Jesus comes right to where you are right now, just as you are, and he invites you to, first of all, join him, and then once you've committed to him, you can go somewhere better with him. He doesn't make you come to him. He comes to you. And so Simon's saying, I can't follow you, and Jesus says, yes, you can, but I'm a sinner. I've done all kinds of things in my life that I shouldn't. It doesn't matter. As Pastor Andy Stanley points out, being a sinner does not disqualify you from becoming a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus never called anybody except sinners to follow him. Let that sink in. If you are a sinner and you know it, you are absolutely qualified to follow Jesus. There's no one who's ever chosen to follow Jesus who wasn't one. So that doesn't put him off at all. He knows that about you. I want you to think about this too. Following Jesus means becoming his disciple. When Jesus invites you to follow him, he's inviting you to become a disciple. 
So if you were to take the, the Bible, read the whole thing cover to cover, and some of you have done that, if you were to read in the New International Version, you'd come across the term disciple some mo- about 300 times. Most of the time when it's talking about a disciple, it's talking about a disciple of Jesus, though it could be talking about disciples of somebody else. But uh, 296 times it says somebody was a disciple of someone else. The word disciple is a great word. It's just one that doesn't mean the same thing to us as it used to mean to people. So when we say disciple, there's some things that maybe come to your mind that are not accurate. So here's my suggestion. I got this from Dallas Willard. I think it's a great one. He said, anytime you see the word disciple in the Bible, just mentally say student or apprentice. Because that's really what the word means, and that's what should come to your mind. When Jesus invites you to become his disciple, he's inviting you to become his student. He's inviting you to become an apprentice of his, to learn from him. See, doesn't it, disciple, I've heard some of the goofiest stuff. So when we talk about Jesus being a a teacher and we are his students or apprentices, I've heard people say things like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. Like there's different levels. Like I'm just at the basic 100 level and I've been baptized and I'm in, but you know, there's people who just really take it seriously and they're like really uber committed and so... Those are the disciples, and I'm not really one of those, so there's no levels to this. It's not like you're a Christian, and then you're a really good Christian, they're a disciple. Everybody who is a Christian is also a disciple. You are a student of Jesus. In fact, if you took a circle and you put everybody in the circle who is a student or a disciple of Jesus, some of them aren't even Christians yet. Am I right? How can you become a Christian if you don't first become a student of Jesus and learn about him? Why would you make a commitment to somebody that you don't even know anything about? So first you become a student or an apprentice of Jesus. There may come a point in your life where you say, that's it. I'm committing my whole life to him. He's going to be my Lord. I'm going to be baptized in water, and I'm I'm all in. And that's the next step for you. But everybody who's learning about Jesus is a student of Jesus, and he invites everybody to be a student of his. And he wants everybody to. Jesus... uh, Dallas Willard said this. I just love this. Jesus preached discipleship is the greatest opportunity any human being could ever have. You know why? And we'll get more into this next week when we talk about Jesus' extraordinary teaching. It's through discipleship, it's through being a student of Jesus that you get your bad ideas corrected. You get your wrong thinking straightened out. You, you learn how to live your life the, the best way for the first time when you become a student of Jesus. Best thing that could ever happen to you is to become a follower of his. I want to tell you something. I know people feel like, and, and some of you have felt this way, some of you know someone who feels this way, like, I can't go to church. I've just done, done too many things. Like, I, I just don't belong there. Church is for church people, and I'm not a church person. That doesn't disqualify you. You may feel like you've never done anything right in your life. God has called you. God has invited you. God has a purpose for you. There is not a single person that you've ever made eye contact with that does not matter to Jesus. You know, anybody can become a follower of Jesus. Osama bin Laden would have been welcome to be a follower of Jesus, to learn about him, and the world and him, and Osama would have been a better person for it. That's Saddam Hussein. You pick the, work, the, the terrorists in Paris, San Bernardino shooters, anybody can become a student of Jesus. And I want you to know that because God's got a plan for the whole world and it includes you. And you may feel like you're stuck 
and you've never done anything right, you may feel like you're addicted and never will break free. You may just wonder if there's anything that has meaning in your life. And once you know there is, and through Jesus, you'll find it. And you can, you can follow him. Some of you have people in your life that you need to be inviting to follow Jesus. You have some people in your life you need to be praying about and looking for the open door and the opportunity to talk about Jesus and, and to share your faith in Jesus because they are living a meaningless existence and they don't know that God cares about them and has a purpose for their life. Look what happened to these guys. No one would have looked at the guys that Jesus called to follow him, the, the men and women, and said, oh, man, those guys are going to change the world. They were not anywhere near top drawer kind of people. Jesus took people who were sinners, and he took people who had no ability or anything like that, and he completely changed. You take the 12 men that Jesus called to be his apostles, his eyewitnesses to his teachings and miracles and resurrection. Those guys weren't highly educated, top drawer leadership ability. Listen to what happened just a few years after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven. This is in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. So the members of the Jewish council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Peter and John are up before them on charges for preaching about Jesus. So this, this religious council could see that James and John were, or Peter and John were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, but this is the important part. They also recognized them as men who'd been with Jesus. When you follow Jesus and become a student of Jesus, it changes everything. I mean, you we come to this, not just, this is not the end. This is the thing that points us to Jesus, tells us about Jesus, so we can follow Jesus. And if you will follow him, he'll change your life. We are here today because those men were with Jesus, and they spread the message, who then took the message on from there. Had they not done that, we wouldn't be here. I'm wondering what kind of an impact and legacy may follow you, because you are a follower of Jesus, and you passed your faith on to others. Why don't you let Jesus lead you into your God-given purpose in your life? Can I pray for you? Father, I want to thank you that you've given us this very clear, true story of what, what happened in these guys' lives when they followed Jesus. And their eyes were opened gradually, but they eventually came to the conclusion that Jesus was no ordinary person, no ordinary man, but that he was truly your son. And so, Father, I pray we would have that same realization, that we would see Jesus as he truly is, that we would recognize that he has all wisdom and that he has all power, and that the best thing that we could ever do in our lives would be to follow him and to trust him and to learn from him. Help us to get past anything that, that we may feel disqualifies us. Just teach our hearts that you are willing to forgive and love. And, Father, I pray that none of us would say no to the love that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.